The second command is, you're not allowed to make any graven images before me. You sound like, wow, that's kind of redundant, God. I'm not allowed to have idols, and I'm not allowed to make idols. Isn't that kind of redundant? But this isn't redundant. Kind of it is. Why? Because he wants you to know how important this one is. If you don't get this one right, then all the other commandments mean nothing. All the other commandments mean nothing. The second thing is it's not quite redundant because first, this is mostly against making images. And this isn't just against like having an image of some God over here. This is about not even making an image of Yahweh himself. Yahweh is so holy, so unique, so utterly that you're not allowed to make anything in creation to represent him. Because nothing in creation can accurately portray the entirety of who he is. It's like the three-leaf clover. God is kind of like a three-leaf clover. No, he's not. He's nowhere close to that. Okay? Or the egg. Okay? He's nowhere even close to that. And you're limiting him in that. First reason why he forbids the images of himself is this. He is the transcendent creator of all creation. He is beyond anything. There's nothing that can express him. And it's not just this, the totality of who he is. You have to realize when you look at an image, images are powerful. And images become the entirety of what you think. It's very hard to think outside of what you're seeing. And so if you create an image of God, then it's very hard to see him as something beyond just that image. And that image becomes who God is to you. And then all he is is that thing, and he ceases to be the unboundless, transcendent God of the universe. And I'll I'll develop this idea a little bit more. The second reason is that you are a creature. And you're creating an image of the creator. You're trying to create God in your image. You're saying, this is what I think God is. And so you're painting a picture or carving something to portray him. But that's not at all who God is because your my understanding of God is so pathetic and limited to who he is. And God forbid me thinking that I can actually portray an image of God that might actually communicate what I actually mean God to be to somebody else. I mean, how often do we get misinterpreted all the time? Oh, that's not what I was saying. And you try it again and they, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to say. And then, like, especially, like, in marriage sometimes, like, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to say. Like, because she speaks woman, I speak man, and we don't know how to translate. Now can you imagine trying to communicate the most ultimate, divine, transcendent God of the entire universe through an image? And you know, like, I remember being in Dallas, Texas, and I went into this museum. You guys know air conditioning ductwork. It's just that metal tubing that goes through your house and brings cold air from one place to the other. There was just a mess of it sitting on a podium, and it was, like, going for $3,000 as a piece of art. And, like, I work construction for a living. You know how many of these things I've ripped out of houses and thrown into the dumpster? I'm thinking, all I had to do was throw it on a table and sell it, and I could put myself through college? Like, it was so ticked. But people were, like, saying, I heard people in the museum going, this represents the angst and the twistedness that we have in our souls, and da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, it's metal that I rip out of a house. (laughs) Images don't mean the same thing to everybody. And you paint this image that might completely miscommunicate who God is to somebody else. Or it limits in your mind because now God becomes that image. 
And not only that, the third reason is this, is now you're creating them in your image and you know how you feel. I don't know if you've ever created music or built a website or built a piece of furniture or painted a painting or drawn a picture or solved a really cool math equation. Whatever it is, we've all created something. We've knitted something. We've made dinner. I mean, my wife gets really offended when the girls don't like and want to eat her meal. Like, this is what I slaved over and created. And she takes it so personally. If somebody were to come up to your work of art and slash it with a knife, or burn it down, or say, this is nasty and disgusting, I don't want to eat it. You take it so personally. Because you've invested your energy, you've invested your emotions, you've invested your heart into this thing. And if somebody doesn't like it, like when I create something and my wife's like, well, that's kind of off a little bit. I take it so personally, I feel like she's criticized the entire thing. Because this is mine that I created. It's a part of me is in it. And what you do to it, I own it. And if you create an image of God, what you will do subconsciously is you'll begin to think that you own God and you control that thing. And if something does something to the image, you are offended because they've destroyed something you've created rather than the fact that they have done something to God. And it's a very dangerous temptation to allow yourself to go into. And if you doubt me, just go into the Catholic Church. This nun painted a picture of Jesus for my father-in-law and gave it to him as a gift. And the way she talked about it, it was her creation. It was her object. It was her gift to him. And it's like, this is Jesus, the divine God of the universe. Now, here's the other reason why this is dangerous. Images are powerful. I watch, I read all the Lord of the Rings way before the movies ever came out or were a dream or a glint in his, the director's mind. And the, I love reading. I love fantasy. I love sci-fi. I love the imagination. And you build these worlds based on the description and the poetry and the, the language of the author. And this image of Frodo pops in your head and this image of... And then you go watch Lord of the Rings, which are great. I'm not knocking them. But that imagination of that director trumps it. And here's what I found. You go back and read Lord of the Rings, and I can never, ever see the image of Frodo again that I had created. I can only see the image from the movie. You do that. Think about books you've read, and they made them a movie. And then when you go back and you read the book again, just read a chapter, you, ca you cannot stop seeing the image of the actor that they chose or the way that they painted the world. And even if you say, that's totally inaccurate, they missed it, it's still hard to go back to the book and not see what, because visuals are powerful and they trump everything in our life. And so how many of you, when you think of Jesus, the Aryan race appears in your head? The six-foot, blue-eyed, blonde-haired man pops into your head. And yet he's nowhere close to that. He's probably five foot three at the most, dark complected. And yet that image trumps everything. And what it means is that when you come to the Bible and you're reading about a God that sits on the throne, how many of you have a big bushy white haired man with a beard and a flowing white robe coming out with his finger appearing to you or something from the Simpsons cartoon or something like that or whatever? And that's the image of God that you have all the time. 
It's so powerful that some people can't trust God as a father because their father was abusive. Images are powerful. And it's, you're limiting now. Now God is forever that thing that you're looking at. For my daughters, the cartoons are dangerous. I'm not saying... Now here's the thing. I'm not saying that you can't have an actor of Jesus acting out Jesus in a movie because I know that Jesus' film has led many people to Christ. I'm not saying that you can't have a picture of Jesus. I'm just saying be aware of what our hearts are. Be aware of how dangerous and tempting it is. People that I've known, good Protestant faithful people who would adamantly condemn the worship of Mary and the saints in the Catholic Church, and they have to look at that picture of Jesus in the room every time they pray. Why? Know your heart and know what it's capable of and know the dangers of those images. As a teacher, I can tell you how many cartoons I have to undo in my kids' minds. The things that VeggieTales have got wrong. My daughter came home one day from church and said, is it true that when Daniel was in the lion's den, the angel came in and he looked like this and he had long flowing blonde hair and he shot out sparkling stars out of his hand to put the lions to sleep? No. (laughs) And no matter how many times I've told her no, she still kind of thinks that way. Images are powerful. And I'm not going to legalistically condemn you for having an image of God or the movies. or like, Because the reality is Christ came in an image. And God is going to create images of cherubim and put them into the tabernacle. And he's going to give them permission to have an image of a bull and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just saying, if you really want to get to the heart of this law, it's know your heart. And know the dangers of saying that this is God. And that's what God is really getting at. Know your heart. Know your heart. And here's the other reason why you don't need an image of God. You are the image of God. God already created an image, and it's you. You are the representative of God. You are what people look at and say, that's who God is. You're the one whose life is supposed to tell the truth about who God is. And this is why when they came to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, we're going to get him on this one. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we pay taxes to or give money to God? And Jesus says, hand me a coin. And he says, who images on that? And they said, Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. And you're like, okay, that doesn't kind of make sense. Like the image of the coin is Caesar. Give it to Caesar. Everything has Caesar's image on it. What do you give God? And what Jesus is saying is this coin has the image of Caesar. You give it to him but your life has the image of God on it, you give your life to God. That's what he meant. That's what he meant when he said, give that to Caesar and you give to God what is God. You can do, God doesn't need your money, even though he does command you to tithe. I'm not giving you a reason not tithe. But what he ultimately wants is your life because you're his image. And you honestly think you can improve on the image of God that he created with something different? And this is why he's commanding this. These are the dangers. Does this make sense? Any questions? This one's a hard one. Most people believe that this is not dealing with individuals, but corporately. So, when you get to um, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, And Ezekiel 18, verse 4, God specifically says that he and you are not to punish the children for the sins of the father, and you're not to punish the father for the sins of the children. 
So he makes it very clear. You're not allowed to punish other people for the sins of other people. Now, one of the reasons he says this, it was not uncommon that if I murdered somebody of a lesser class or the same class, I could actually get somebody else to die in my place if I'm a wealthy, prominent person. But the other thing is you're not allowed to, like, especially as a teacher, I, you know, it's like, oh, you're, I had your father when you are in school. <laughs> like, okay, there's that payback kind of a sense, or you're going to be just like him. So God makes it very clear. However, God does punish children and grandchildren for the sins of the parents. And he makes it very clear in Exodus 34 that he will do that. So is God contradicting himself? We don't know exactly, but here's the best understanding. He seems to be talking about them corporately, meaning that there are certain sins that our grandparents committed generationally in this country of America, and we're all going to get punished for it. Okay, we're all reaping the consequences of it. We're all going to deal with judgments. Okay, we have enslaved people. We have killed people. We have passed laws that have oppressed people. And the reality is America needs to be punished for that. And maybe is even being punished, but I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to say what is or what is not. But the reality is there are judgments. Our ancestors before us, all generations, and our generation, my generation, will do the same thing in just different ways that those punishments will be delivered on America corporately. And yes, a lot of innocent people would say, but I never did that, will be punished as a result because God deals with people corporately. <laughs> Same thing as a family. You guys know that you've all been punished in certain ways for what one person in the family has done because you're part of that family. And in a certain sense, that's what he's talking about. Because idolatry is never just a personal thing. Idolatry always spreads especially in a community-oriented people that are not individualistic and isolated like we are today. And so what God is saying is when you become an idolater, the whole nation will become an idolater, and I will punish the children and the grandchildren because that will just spread, and there will be serious consequences that will carry on for a long time. And we're, gonna, we're reaping the consequences of the presence before us as well as the blessings. And you can say, oh, that's not fair that I'm going to get punished for what the earliest generation did. Well, that's not fair that you didn't do jack crap and you're now getting blessed for what they, the generation did before you and what they did. And it's also not fair that you get to go to heaven because somebody else died on the cross for you. And so if you really want to talk about fair, then go to hell. <laughs> because that's really what fair is. Because you didn't do anything to earn that salvation. Realize that that's the reality. Now, somebody's going to totally edit that and take that out of context. <laughs> But the reality is there's consequences for living in a community, period. And that's what he means. But here's the other thing. This is what you cannot miss about this. But he blesses you to the thousandth generation. No matter how just God is, he's more gracious and merciful than he is just. And, and, and I know that can be seriously taken out of context, too. It makes it sound bad. But hold on to that. I told you, we're really going to develop this justice and mercy more when we get to chapter 34. We really cannot dive into the justice and mercy of God until we get to 34. So if there's any questions about that, let's just hold on to that. But right now you need to know that what God primarily wants you to know him as is, yes, he is a just God, and there are consequences that will go into it, but the blessings will go far further and far deeper than the consequences because he's that kind of God. Just like eternal life goes far deeper 
than any consequences that you can receive for your sins in this life right now. And so we'll hold on to that, but that's what I want to say about that right now. But when we get to 34, we'll unpack that justice and that mercy a lot more. Yes, specifically connected to idolatry. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't apply to other sins that God will later talk about in Deuteronomy and that kind of stuff, but right here is specifically idolatry. And there are ser- that's how serious God takes his sin. But if you're devoted to him, the blessings will be phenomenal. The blessings will go way on. I mean, think about it. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son for his faith in God. And now you and I are all reaping the unconditional benefits of the Abrahamic covenant because of what Abraham did by faith. That's more than a thousand generations. And that's, that's, you are a living example of reaping the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant because of what one guy did where he was willing to sacrifice his son and put God even above his own son. Now, if you struggle with why he would sacrifice his son, then go to Genesis and listen to that because it actually makes sense. But, um, but the reality is that's an example of going way beyond just a simple generation. We come to the next commandment, the third commandment. Verse 7. You will not take the name of, your, of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not hold the guiltless anymore anyone who takes his name in vain. We immediately think that just means you can't say JC in a swearing kind of way or all the ways that Hollywood puts in the movies because they like doing it just to kind of get a spark under your rear end. Mostly they're just doing it for shock value and everybody bites the hook. He's not just talking about that, although he is. I'm not, don't, I'm not saying it's like, okay, now you can do that, that's okay. What he's mostly saying is you're not allowed to raise the name of God up for no good. That's what it literally means in Hebrew. You're not just allowed to, if God is truly holy and truly righteous, then you're not, just, you're not allowed to just flippantly use his name however way you want. When you say his name, you say it with revere. You say it respect. Okay? When, when, when our spouses or children talk to us and use our name, we want them to use it. If your children say your name in a really degrading way or like a whiny way or whatever, it kind of like gets under your skin. You're like, ah. Oh. If you can feel that, then does not the divine God of the universe feel that? And so part of it is you're not allowed to use it up in this frivolous, flippant kind of a way. And mostly what he's talking about is you're also not allowed to take it as an oath. Now, God does not forbid oaths. Or you would not, your whole wedding ceremony was like bad. <laughs> or your commitment to Christ is bad. But what he's saying is you're not allowed to say, I swear to God or Yahweh that da da, and he didn't think through it. Vows show up all throughout the Bible, and they're most of the time they're just people saying it in an emotional way, and they don't take it seriously. Or you're not allowed to just say God is or God this, and just, and you're not thinking through how you're truly communicating God to people. But here's the most important one: if you are meant to extrapolate all these laws into a character life sense, then remember this all goes back to name is character. What you name somebody as their character. And we just name people because we like the sound of their name or the, the word. 
Now, some of you might have not named your children that way, and that's great, but most Americans are just, I like the sound of this word, so I'm going to name my kid that. In the ancient world, you named your kid based on a character that you saw in them or what you hoped for them to become or what you hoped that God would do for them. A lot of Jews would actually wait three or six months before they named their children after birth because they wanted to observe something in them before they gave them a name that represented their character. It was not uncommon for people to get multiple names throughout their lives. Have you ever read um, the, um, James Fenimore Cooper's books um, on Hawkeye? And they made it into a famous movie called Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis. That guy has like 20 names. A lot of people in the colonial days had multiple names based on if they accomplished something, they would get a new nickname. Or somebody saw a character and then they get a nickname. Or the Indians would name him Dancing with Wolves and Sitting Bulls based on their character. That's how people, so name is character. We talked about that, that Yahweh is his character. So if you're in the image of God, then your life is supposed to reflect and tell the truth of God, which means any time that you do think or say anything that does not accurately reflect the character of God, you've taken his name in vain. Now, you've really violated that one. Because right now, you probably spent most of your life thinking, but I've never said Jesus Christ or God whatever in a swear word. Or that was a long time ago when I was a stupid kid. But now, check, check, I don't swear with his name. But you are every single day. Because vain means to treat it as if it's meaningless. It's empty. In fact, the word like vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless is everything, says the teacher in Ecclesiastes. What that really means is vapor, smoke. You try to grasp it and it just disappears in your hands. And when somebody says, oh, you're a Christian, and they try to grasp who God is by watching you, it just disappears. Because you're not faithful. You've just taken the Lord's name in vain. You've taken his character and you said, I am a reflection of God's character. And they look at the character and they see you do that and they think, it's empty. God is empty. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. It covers all the bases. I told you. Welcome to being a sinner. 